welcome. Just before we start and have a prayer, I want to remind you that Wes is in hospital, so let's keep Wes in prayer. Evelyn's provided a card in the foyer to write something for Wes. Apparently, he had his gallbladder taken out. Yeah, I won't go into the details, but <laughs> but it was serious, and um, had, he had pain, of course. So let's keep Wes in prayer. Also, his wife, keep her in prayer. Uh, Floy, is it? Floy, keep her in prayer too. And um, those who have lost loved ones, we have a number of people here today who have lost loved ones. Pray that God will be the great comforter for those people too. Let's have a word of prayer. Gracious God, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. As we open your holy word, Lord, we want to encounter truth. and We want you to mold us and shape us by this truth, especially the truth about the Lord Jesus Christ. So may your spirit be here to be our guide and to be our teacher. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'm taking the Bible in the pew just to give you the page reference. We're in Acts chapter 18, doing a series on the book of Acts. And everybody's thoroughly enjoying it, right? I know I am. I must admit, I'll be very honest with you, I came to this passage today and I thought, hmm, is there really something to share there? Is and as I studied it and thought about it and got a little bit deeper into it, I thought, wow, this, is, this has got a lot of good stuff in it. So today we're going to be starting at um, around verse 18 of chapter 18, and that's page 1725, 1725. And we have a, a map up here of the third missionary journey. So we've come kind of to the end of the second missionary journey of Paul. Today we really won't be talking too much about Paul, except he has a haircut. Did you know about Paul's haircut? Well, you'll hear about that this morning. But very briefly, because I think later in the book of Acts we can talk more about haircuts and vows and fun stuff like that. Today we'll be focusing mainly on uh, Apollos and Aquila and Priscilla. So those are the main focus today. So as we turn to Acts chapter 18, we're going to lay the focus on Ephesus. And Ephesus is um, perhaps the third largest city at this time in the Roman Empire. Some project 250,000 plus people. We've noticed as Paul goes around doing his outreach taking the gospel to primarily the Gentiles, but whoever will hear, that he, he is strategic. He's aiming for strategic areas, and Ephesus certainly fits into that, to that category. Not only is it a large population base, but a lot of trade and so on would go through there. So last week we talked about about um, Corinth being a big commercial center, an important place, so is Ephesus. And it says there in, in uh, chapter 18, 
It says, Paul stayed on in Corinth for some time, and then he left the brothers and sailed for Syria, accompanied by Priscilla and Aquila. So here's Priscilla and Aquila being mentioned uh, once again. Before he sailed, he had his hair cut off at Sancria because of a vow he had taken. That's verse 18 of chapter 18 in Acts. So I'm not going to say very much about this vow because I think I could, in chapter 21 I can pick up the idea of vows and haircuts there. So I'm going to save it for later, except to say this. If you make a vow to God, you take it seriously. And apparently um, within Judaism, that the, the, they did take these vows, or some of them, like Paul, did take these vows very, very seriously. There were others that found clever ways of getting around their vows, and then there were people like, like uh, Samson who didn't seem to take his Nazarite vow. This is probably a Nazarite vow, uh, a temporary Nazarite vow, whereas Samson was a permanent Nazarite vow and uh, something that he didn't seem to take seriously. Jesus in Matthew 5 and uh, the Sermon on the Mount talks a little bit about oaths and vows and thing, things like that. And uh, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Keep it simple. But if you do, for whatever reason, he's probably taking a vow because God had preserved his life in Corinth. He was in some very dangerous situations. We've, we've spoken about where he had been stoned and left for dead on an earlier occasion. So he was in a very... Um, number of very difficult situations, and possibly he took his vow for that reason. We're not really told uh, why. So we see Paul traveling, arriving at Ephesus, where Paul left Priscilla and Aquila, verse 19. He himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. This is a familiar pattern that we've seen. This apostle to the Gentile will go to a Jewish synagogue. This is where the Christians and, the Jew, and, and Christian Jews and Gentile, Gentiles would meet. You'd get what's called the God-fearers, would, would be the non-Jews that would go to the synagogue, and they would hear the Word of God, what we call the Old Testament. And they would take that scroll out very, very carefully. Everything was very dignified when it came to the Word of God. Didn't have a casual approach to these things. And these, these Gentiles, these non-Jews, would, would listen, and, and many of them would respond to what they heard. So Paul knew that in the Jewish synagogue, he would have an audience, and he would get the opportunity to share in these places. And sometimes, like they would say, as they did in, in Ephesus, stay for a while, and otherwise, other times they would drive him out of town. And then some converts would come from his preaching and teaching, and then sometimes, like in Corinth, he would start a church around those people. So he's, he's in the synagogue, and he reasoned with the Jews. Remember what I said last week and on some other occasions? Uh, these people like Paul are not just saying, let's all love Jesus and... That's pretty much it, Christianity 101. They're reasoning their case. 
They've got to show that Jesus is the fulfillment of Old Testament Scripture. Did He just claim to be the Messiah or really did He fulfill Scripture? So there would have been some serious work that the preacher would have to do to show that Christ fulfilled Scripture. He really, to the letter, He became the Messiah, the Anointed One, the Christ. It says in verse 20, when they asked him to spend more time with them, he declined. But as he left, he promised, I will come back if it is God's will. It's a good attitude, don't you think? God's will, you don't know what tomorrow holds. Even if they give you a warm welcome as, they, as he seemed to get here in Ephesus, it's still God's will be done. So he set sail from Ephesus and when he landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. After spending some time in Antioch, Paul set out from there and traveled from place to place throughout the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. So it's not enough just to be the church planter, which Paul was, the missionary that's going to a foreign field to plant the church. You need leaders to consolidate, to strengthen the church. So here we see Paul playing that pastoral role as well. Very, very important. But I want to move on. Meanwhile, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. Any of you ever been to Alexandria? on the Mediterranean. Beautiful. I, I remember walking along the coastline there once. So, where is Apollos from? Alexandria in Egypt. And he came to Ephesus. He was a learned man with a thorough knowledge of the Scriptures. So he was a learned man. He was an educated man. Alexandria was known for its famous museum, its famous library, its famous university. Somewhere along the, the line, this man got a good education, probably in a Jewish setting. A man called Philo, where we get an allegorical interpretation of Scripture, I believe was from Alexandria. So, God wants us to get all the education we possibly can, right? We don't put a premium on ignorance. At least in the Seventh-day Adventist church, we have a huge emphasis and put a lot of resources in educating people. Most Seventh-day Adventist pastors rightly or wrongly, usually have at least seven years of education before they are given a church, sometimes longer than that. And I can give the pros and the cons for that or against that, but I believe that Scripture and certainly the Seventh-day Adventist Church lays a high premium on uh, education. 
But the most important education is in what? In the Scriptures. It, so it clarifies his learning, a thorough knowledge of the Scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and he spoke with great fervor. Do you like your preacher or teacher to have some passion? Have you ever had a preacher or a teacher who kind of is monotone? And it's like you're, it's kind of like you're in a funeral parlor. And you're preaching to the dead. As though you are dead. Most people don't like that. And you can still be a good pastor and, and not have the passion and the fervor that Apollos had but it's good to have both if, if you can uh, have, the, have the gifts and the talents that should possibly be one of them. The reality is, whether it's good or bad in the Seventh-day Adventist church, most people come for the sermon. So you hope that there's a little bit of fire in the pulpit. Okay, so Apollos is uh, learned, knowledge of the Scriptures, instructed in the way of the Lord, spoke with great fervor, taught about Jesus accurately, though he knew only the baptism of John. That's the key phrase there. He knew only the baptism of who? John, not the apostle John, but John who? John Baptist. And if you want to read about John Baptist, you can go to the beginning of Matthew. So just keep your finger in our Acts there and go right to the beginning of Matthew chapter 3. See a little bit about John the Baptist there. In those days, it says, Matthew 3, John the Baptist came preaching in the desert of Judea and saying, Repent! Now you have to, to really get the impact of John. You kind of have to know a little bit about biblical history. Because we have hundreds of years that as far as we know, the prophets were silent. Sometimes we call that the intertestamental period. But to keep things simple, just think that Judaism hadn't heard very much from its prophets for this long period of time. But now it's time for Messiah to come. And there's somebody that God is raising up to prepare the way. That's John the Baptist. So this would be very dramatic. It's like this man coming out of the desert in, in this rough clothing, almost like a hermit-type individual, and then preaching a repentance message. What does repentance mean? Turning around, change your thinking, open up your mind. Messiah is here. You know, it's one thing for a nation, a group of people to, to, in fact, every mother that's giving birth to this Jewish child, male child, is hoping that this is going to be the Messiah. So they're all prophesying, they're all hoping, and here's John the Baptist, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. Whoa, who is this? He really gets their attention. He shakes things up. Goes on to describe uh, in verse 4 the clothes that he wore, wore and so on. I'm going to jump to verse 11. I baptize you with water 
for repentance. So very much a repentance message. Oh, by the way, John didn't sprinkle. I know water's scarce in the desert, but it was immersion. That's the biblical way. I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me will come one, this is Jesus now, who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I'm not fit to carry, he will baptize you with what? The Holy Spirit and fire. And so on. So there's a little taste of this dramatic character, John the Baptist. Now, with Apollos, we have a man that is very learned in a limited way. It's hard to say in what way he was limited to be definitive about that. Somehow, whoever had taught him in Alexandria had, had carried the thrust of John's message there and shared it with Apollos. Apollos probably had been a good student and he had gathered the text together in the Old Testament that talk about the Messiah and clearly applied them to the Lord Jesus Christ. But his understanding is defective. As learned as he is, there are some key truths he does not understand. And let me say to all of us, there's an element of truth in that for all of us in this room today. There's not a one of us that probably has the full picture. There's probably not a one of us that can really pull all the pieces together of Scripture and give a really clear picture of what God's purposes are. The more we grow, the more we mature, the more we learn about truth, is the better we should be able to explain this. So as wonderful and talented as Apollos is, he has this defective understanding, despite it saying here that, that he had, was accurate in the way that he described Jesus. Probably he could talk about the life of Jesus to some extent. Perhaps he could even talk about the death of Jesus. But there's some things that he just simply doesn't know about. And who's going to help him? Not the Apostle Paul this time. Two church members. Priscilla and Aquila. And the way that this is worded, if you trace those names through the book of Acts, you'd see it start with Aquila and Priscilla. So when I look this up in the Seventh-day Adventist Bible dictionaries, which some of you have, and I look under Priscilla, it has just a really short paragraph. And it says, go to Aquila to get the bigger story. And yet the reality is Priscilla, the female in the relationship, is the one who's taking the lead. She's the one that has the gifts necessary, it seems, to really help this powerful preacher and teacher, Apollos. 
And so it says there, after, after the baptism of John in verse 26, he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. This would be powerful, convincing message to the Jews. And when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they publicly denounced him. Is that what the text says? What does it say? They invited him to their home. What would you do? Would you have the preacher for dinner? Or would you have the preacher at your house for dinner? Now, I know if you're vegetarian, I know you won't have the preacher for dinner. But some of us do. And one of the lessons we're going to learn today, hopefully, is that every preacher and every teacher, every leader, in fact, in the church, has certain gifts. Nobody has them all. Nobody is to be put in a pedestal except God, the Lord Jesus Christ. So give due, due respect where it's deserved, but we don't ever want to interact with people that God is using and uh, maybe overly criticize them or whatever. So I like what the text says here in verse 26. Priscilla and Aquila heard him, so now the names are reversed. The focus is on Priscilla. They invited him to their home, and they explained to him the way of God more adequately is the way the NIV puts it. So certain truths that they were not hearing in the synagogue, they're going to fill in the blanks with Apollos. And so then, of course, the question comes to a thinking person like you, what are those blanks? And here, we have to guess, maybe use our imagination a little bit. So here's what I wrote down. Well, let me ask you first, what do you think it would be? I kind of pushed my class a little bit this morning because one of the texts came up in Corinthians on, on milk and solid food. So I said, let's try and figure out what the milk is. But then near the end of the class, I said, what, what do you think the solid food is? And it seems to me that that idea possibly fits in here with Apollos. So, yes, what would, what would the gaps be here? What would you think? Addie? Okay, almost certainly doesn't know the baptism of the Holy Spirit. That's pretty easy to conclude that because when we go into chapter 9, 19 rather, the next chapter, we're going to find a bunch of people who also only knew the baptism of John and specifically did not know about the Holy Spirit. So it seems to me that would be a pretty safe bet that he probably didn't know about the Pentecost didn't know about the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. 
which, by the way, is the sign that we are in the Messianic age. So it's one thing to say, hey, John preached the Messiah as fulfilled in Jesus Christ. It's quite another thing to say, hey, this Messiah lived, died, rose from the dead, ascended up to heaven, and when he ascended up to heaven, poured out the great gift of the Holy Spirit. So that's a, a good one, a good suggestion, I think. Some of the other ones that I, I wrote down, whether they're correct or not, take them for what they are. Probably didn't know about Jesus' commission, going to all the world, preaching the gospel, teaching men to observe a few things that Jesus taught us. All things, everything that Jesus taught us. That's why we teach about uh, many things that are sometimes not even popular within the Christian community. And it would be a good lesson for all of us if we could know a little bit about church history. And know, um, I was with some pastors this week, and I said, have any of you ever studied the idea of once saved, always saved? And one of those pastors actually came from a Baptist background. And he says, well, I think it came from here, here, and here. And I says, yeah, that, that, could, that seems to make sense. Uh, I haven't really studied it myself, but there are lots of things that came into Christianity, maybe from Greek philosophy, such as the immortality of the soul, for example. A great man like Luther, who, who God used in a very powerful way to bring about the Protestant Reformation, also brought some of his Catholic baggage with him. So even though you can have tremendously outstanding people that God has used, there still can be some defects. Clearly, that's the case with Apollos, but I would suggest it's the case with, with most of us. If you see truth progressing through history, you'll find that a group of people will advance to a certain point, they will embrace a truth, and then they stop. And God will have to raise up other people to move the truth forward. And then, of course, in later generations, they're often rediscovering old truth, shaking the dust off it, and, and making it gleam again in its beauty. So Jesus' commission, His exaltation, the gift of the Holy Spirit, as Addie said, the establishing of the church, Christian baptism, the Lord's Supper, conversion, salvation by grace through faith, circumcision is nothing, Sacrificial system is passing. Justification by faith. Baptism of the Holy Spirit. Those are a few things that I wrote down. Turn, if you will, to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 8.13 is what I wrote down. By calling this covenant new, he made the first one obsolete, and what is obsolete and aging will soon disappear. So one of the ideas that I had as I was studying this, didn't really read anything on it, but just something that came to me, 
is what we basically have here is a transition period from the old covenant age into the new covenant age. And many of you know that the new covenant is spoken about in the book of Jeremiah, uh, given to the Jewish people, by the way. So some Christians make a big deal. Well, I'm a new covenant Christian. Well, yeah, but this was given to the Jews. So praise God, you are a new covenant Christian. Do, do you really understand what that, that means? Let me show you a text that possibly um, can fit in here with this idea of the transition between the old and the new. And it's in Ezekiel 36. It is a passage that should be studied alongside of Jeremiah 31. 31. Ezekiel 36. And um, what verse do we have? Verse 25. Let's start with verse 25. This, I think, is what John would know. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. Ezekiel 36, verse 25. I will cleanse you from all of your impurities and from all of your idols. That seems to me to fit in probably, possibly, with what John would know. His is as great a prophet as he was. Did Jesus say he was a great prophet? Have we just heard that Apollos is a very brilliant man? Yes, yes, to both, but still limited in understanding. It's quite an amazing thing to think that the average Christian today should know way more than someone like John the Baptist or even Apollos. So verse 25, I think, would fit in very well with what we know about John. But verse 26 and 27, this is something new. I will give you a new heart, and I will put a new spirit in you. Do you remember when Jesus taught with Nicodemus? Nicodemus scratched his pharisaical head, trying to figure out what's this new birth business. Remember that? So this was not clear to many Jewish people. But it is very much given to them. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I'll remove from you your heart of stone, give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit, my Holy Spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. God's decrees, God's laws can be kept and delighted in as long as the Holy Spirit's within us. God himself has to invade our life before you really get this genuine obedience where we delight, where we could uh, say with the psalmist, oh, how I delight in thy law. Remember the law, the decrees, they tell us a standard. It's the Spirit of God within us, however, which is the key, because they are the Holy Spirit, he transforms us into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. So when Jesus says things like, um, if you love me, keep my commandments, it's all predicated on this gift of the Holy Spirit. And no one spoke more about the Holy Spirit than the Lord Jesus Christ. So, I think it's exciting I think it's thrilling that Priscilla 
You know the status of women in the first century? That Priscilla can take the lead here is gifted by God to help this great preacher and teacher of Paulus. And in, in essence, what she's doing, she is discipling him. She is mentoring him. A woman mentoring a man. It's unheard of. Now in our culture, maybe not so much. I mean, you can get women CEOs. Some think Hillary Clinton could possibly be president one day. We have heads of states, presidents, prime ministers who are female. So within our culture, maybe not such a huge leap, but within the first century, wow. I don't think most of us who know our Bibles would really think that that kind of thing happened in the first century. But this Priscilla, she's zealous. She's gifted. She has been making tents. She and her husband are making tents with Paul. What do you think they're doing when they're stitching all day long? They're gossiping the gospel. They're sharing the gospel. And Paul, I mean, who, wouldn't you love to pick his brains? Hey, Paul, I've often thought about this. How does all this fit together? And so Priscilla, she'd been soaking it up like a sponge, not knowing that God would send somebody like Apollos to her to mentor and to disciple. And folks, that's a really important part of your Christianity. And I wonder whether we're really catching that at the Anderson Church. I think there's uh, some old covenant thinking here in our church. I think we're sometimes waiting too much for the, the shepherd, the pastor, or the elders to do this, that, and the other. Now, I know the pastor has his role, and I think about that a lot. And the elders have their roles too, but we all have our roles. One of you were mentioning to me just recently about the exciting discovery of the priesthood of all believers, where it says there in the book of Revelation that you are a kingdom of priests. And this, this principle of the priesthood of believers basically started in the first century. But it has taken millennia for us to even begin to understand it. It's not just certain males that are gifted by God, is it? We're all gifted. That's the whole point of Pentecost. Now I know we can easily lose that and, and lay the focus on these men that we're preaching. But remember what Jesus, when he says, go into all the world, who is he talking to? He's not just talking to a few followers who happen to be male. He's saying all of us, all of us who are born of the Spirit, all of us who are baptized of the Holy Spirit, we'll talk more about that next week, are commissioned by God to share Jesus. It's not for a select few. 
The way to understand the different roles is, is in 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12, Ephesians 4, where it talks about us having different gifts. And Paul makes it really clear in 1 Corinthians 12 that, that even if you're just a small part of the body, you are an important part of the body. You're not small meaning insignificant. You're small meaning important. So, for example, you can say, well, my little finger doesn't matter very much. It's not, an import, it's not as important as my, my eyes or my ears or my tongue, right? Or some other body part that you cherish. You hit that little one with a hammer and the whole body hurts. So, so, so the body is, is all interrelated and Paul uses that that analogy of the church family as being like Christ's body. He is the head, and the head directs the rest of the body, just like physically happens with us. So spiritually, that happens too. And it just so happens that within the body, the church family, there are differing gifts. But don't think of those gifts as better or worse. That's the kind of worldly, carnal way to think of it. Think of them as just different. So some of us are up front, we're preaching, we're teaching, and those are what I call the showy gifts. You're out there, you're healing, you're speaking in tongues, you're prophesying. Those are the upfront gifts, right? But within every church family, you have another set of gifts too that are, are, are less upfront gifts. And one of them is right here, the gift of hospitality. Aquila and Priscilla did not have to take Apollos home. The home, by the way, is a great place for evangelism. That is something that I would like us to, to utilize more at this, this Anderson Seventh-day Adventist Church. We've got those of us that have, have homes. Have you ever wondered why Paul says, uh, don't be unequally yoked together? Have you ever thought about that as far as evangelism is concerned? What if Priscilla is the Christian and Aquila is not the Christian? And Priscilla wants to bring the people home that the Lord sends to her and Aquila doesn't want that. You get two people that are equally yoked together and possibly they will open their home together and let evangelism and soul winning and witnessing take place. And a lot of you are still trying to bring people to this church. Now, some of you were successful this morning. Praise God for that. But you know, sometimes it's like, it's like pulling teeth to get people, especially people that are not used to going to church. My first visit, as some of you know, to a Seventh-day Adventist church literally was with fear and trepidation. And I was a converted soul. I had been thoroughly converted and baptized in the Holy Spirit. And yet, even then, it was really hard to step into a church. 
but your home is different. It's a more relaxed, non-threatening setting. So I'm appealing to you on the strength of the Word of God this morning to open your homes and let God use your home. You don't have to be Priscilla. You might be Aquila, the quiet one. But are you willing to open your home? Because if we had just 10 people in the church that would open their home, you would see this church grow. While we're doing meetings here, trying to get the word out, we are not having much success at bringing people into our building. In fact, we have a hard time even getting our church members in here. Right? Am I exaggerating, or is it the truth? We always get a small portion of, of our congregation to come to those uh, more overtly evangelistic type of meetings. If we have something like a cooking school where we get, a, we get a so-so turnout from our members and we do tend to attract some of the community. But if we can open our homes, if we can find ministries in our homes that will appeal to people, then uh, one of them possibly could be this, this movie that some of you wanted to see over, was it Forks, Forks Over Knives? Or was it knives over forks? I always get my knives and forks mixed up. But that could be something, forks over knives, that could easily be done in a home. It could be, it could be done in an evangelistic way where you're bringing in some of the church members who want to see it, but you're also bringing in some other people who want to see that emphasis on, on a healthy diet. So I think there's lots of possibilities for opportunities. Are we willing to open our homes? Are we willing to mentor people? Are we willing to disciple people? And if we're not willing to mentor and disciple people, then I believe we're sinning against God. I'm going to put it that strongly. When Jesus says go, it is in the imperative. It is not an optional extra. It's not like whether you feel like it or not. It's something you need to do to be strong spiritually. You receive from God in many varied ways, right? You study the Word of God, you go to church, you receive spiritually from God, right? Then you need to impart. If you don't impart, it's like the Dead Sea. It stops right there and it stagnates. We don't just need to see fire in the pulpit, we need to see fire in the pews. So that's what John talked about, the baptism of the Holy Spirit and the baptism of fire. So they explained to him the way of God more adequately, and I suggested to you some things that he probably just would simply not know about. But this Apollos is a quick learner. Because in verse 27 it says, when Apollos wanted to go to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples there to welcome him. So what we're seeing here is for the first time in Scripture is the idea of commissioning or credentials. There were a lot of false teachers roaming around in those days. Most of you New Testament is written because of false teachers. 
The only Bible that Jesus had was the Old Testament. The only Bible the early church had was the Old Testament. But as time would go on, and as more and more of these threats to the church would come in, and more and more of the need of instruction, think of a, of a letter like Corinthians, 1 Corinthians. In fact, let's turn to that. And I'll illustrate exactly what I'm talking about. 1 Corinthians is where, where Apollos is, is or, or Corinth rather, is where Apollos is going to go. So you've got Romans, Corinthians. And as we go to 1 Corinthians, what we're dealing with is, is a fairly new tremendously gifted church. I mean, these church members had the gifts coming out their ears. But a very divided church, a problem church, an unhealthy church. So Paul would, would obviously, he, he's got the pastor's heart. He's planted this church. He wants them to be on the right track. And so he writes... 1st and 2nd Corinthians. And by the way, there was a 3rd Corinthians, which we're still wondering where it got lost. But in Corinth, in this church of Corinth, there were a lot of problems such as immorality. Was Corinth an immoral city? Yes, it was. Big time. So just think of... Uh, Parts of San Francisco or parts of Hollywood on a larger scale. And if, if you want a better picture, maybe Sodom and Gomorrah would fit pretty well in the book of Genesis. Corinth was notoriously wicked. And yet this is where Paul went to evangelize. And hey, one of the interesting things is that he didn't just slam them about their sins. Now, do we live in a wicked age? We sure do. But think of how are you going to pull people or draw people towards Jesus Christ? Is it by condemning their sins? Which the list could be pretty long and it could go on for quite a while. And we're always better at condemning other people's sins than our own sins, right? Right? Or is it pointing them to the Lord Jesus Christ? You have to think about that. That's all part of the strategy of how we reach people and draw people. I'm not saying there's not a place for, for a, a exposing sin, but look at the Lord Jesus Christ, how He did it. With the woman caught in adultery, He started drawing in the sand. What was he doing? Teaching them the alphabet? He's drawing their sins. These men that have set her up in this male-dominated society. To them, she's trash. She's to be thrown on the scrap heap after they've stoned her to death. So think of the hypocrisy, the wickedness of that. So Jesus just quietly 
straws in the sand, and they slip away. Think also what's going on in her heart. Condemnation. Caught in the act. Dead to man, because they're going to stone her to death. And dead to God. No hope of eternal life. And Jesus says to her, does no one condemn you? Well, no, because they've all slid away. Neither do I condemn you. Gospel of John, it says, the Son of Man came. He said, Jesus Himself said, I came not to condemn, but go and sin no more. And when that lady became a Christian and a follower of Jesus Christ, then and only then did she have the power and the ability to not live a life of sin. On the other hand, going to the other extreme, the Jewish leaders who should have known so much better, he called them whitewashed sepulchres, hypocrites. Anyway, back to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Paul talks of, I appeal to you, brothers, in the name of the Lord Jesus, verse 10, that all of you agree with one another so that there be no divisions among you. It says in verse 12, what I mean is this, one of you says, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, so I follow the one who planted the church, now I'm following the one who's coming in, learning about this fuller gospel, and is, is powerfully being used by God. Hey, we're gravitating to him. We never learned these things from Paul. Paul never shared these truths with us. And that's true. Paul didn't. Why? Because they were not ready for it. And so, hence, back to our study earlier today. So I had to give you milk, Paul says, and not solid food. Can you see how Christians can so easily miss the point? Here's this church being given so many gifts from God. Having someone great like the Apostle Paul planting this church, laying the foundation, I'm sure he laid a good foundation, I couldn't think of anyone else that would do it better. And yet here they are, in-house fighting. I like this preacher and I like that preacher. Well, hey, we all have our favorites, do we not? But don't divide over it. And then in chapter 3, he says, Brothers, I couldn't address you as spiritual, but as worldly or carnal, mere infants in Christ, I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not yet ready for it, and still, indeed, you are still not ready. You are still worldly. He's not saying they're not Christians. He's not saying they're not followers of Jesus. But he is saying that they're spiritual infants. And they shouldn't be anymore. They should have got to the point where they are growing in Christ, where some spiritual maturity is coming into the church. And let me tell you, folks, Whatever your preferences are in life, you can never, ever allow them to divide the body of Christ. You don't believe that? Your preferences are not the most important thing. But the unity of the church is everything to Christ. He died for that. For since there's jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere men? One, one, one says, I follow Paul. 
And another says, I follow Apollos. Are you not mere men? Did Paul and Apollos agree with one another? Yes. Is Apollos embarrassed by the way that they're treating him and preferring him against these other leaders in the church? Yes, he is. And if you read the end of 1 Corinthians 16, which, by the way, Paul specifically thanks Priscilla and Aquila. It's amazing how these church members were used by God to advance his cause and were a tremendous blessing to Apollos and to the Apostle Paul. But also we see there that Apollos did not want to come back to Corinth until they had matured in the faith. It's one thing to be used in a powerful way by God, which both Paul and Apollos were. But it's a terrible thing when our favorites, we start vying for one over the other. God sends his leaders, his workers, sends church members so that we can be rounded out. No one person has all the gifts, has all the talents. So, let's finish off Acts chapter 18 in the next few minutes that we have. It says, On arriving, he was a great help to those who by grace he had believed, verse 27 of chapter 18, for he vigorously refuted the Jews in public debate, proving from the Scriptures that Jesus was the Christ, the Anointed One, the Messiah. These church members in Corinth had not got to the point, either because of spiritual immaturity or whatever, where they could take on these unbelieving Jews and prove that Christ was the Messiah. Apollos could do that. So no wonder they gravitated to their champion. But Paul was a champion too. A great champion. And unfortunately, he says, I couldn't give you these deeper truths, which probably Apollos was now sharing, because you simply were not ready for it. So let's all decide from this point on that we're going to move on from our infancy, spiritually, to our spiritual maturity. What does it mean to be spiritually mature? We're not going to be quarreling amongst one another. We're not going to be bickering and, and showing our preferences and allowing things like that to divide us. That we're going to open our homes. Is that a sign of spiritual maturity? Why not? Mentor people. Disciple people. We have people in our midst that desperately need that. And God has not left that work just to the pastor. Whether that leader be Apollos or Paul or even Priscilla and Aquila, we all share the responsibility of helping one another to grow up into the Lord Jesus Christ. So when you start digging a little bit in these chapters, there's a lot of stuff there, right? I mean, we just skimped right over the vows and the haircut and all that fun stuff. We're going to come back to that later in chapter 21. And next week, we will deal with a tremendously interesting passage 
of a whole group of people who only knew the baptism of the Apostle John. Let's pray. Gracious God, be with this church family and other church families that are represented here this morning. Help each one of us to grow up into the lovely image of the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord, that he is indeed the Messiah, the only hope for this world. We thank you for raising people up like Apollos and Priscilla and Aquila to advance your cause. Please use us in some small way, Lord, to extend your kingdom. We pray that Jesus Christ will return soon. We live in a crazy world, Lord, that's cracking, breaking up, fragmenting. Each one of us has the privilege and the responsibility to go out into the marketplace and to share the Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe by doing acts of kindness or by telling some, somebody about the love of God. Use us, Lord, as a church family to make a difference in this community is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.